Well, I want to begin our time, if I can, by asking a couple questions. What does God think of our church's worship? What does he desire for it to be like? And perhaps it might be good to qualify what I mean by worship first. Uh, By default, we can think that um, we're talking about the singing and praise and the worship component. Uh, But I, I think we understand at our church especially that we view all of the service as a worship service, and that every um, component is an act of worship, from our fellowship to our prayers to our welcoming of strangers to our reading of God's Word to singing songs of praise to preaching and teaching His Word. All these we would confirm as acts of worship. And I'm also not just limiting worship to Sundays. But I'm asking the question, what does worship look like corporately for our ministry during the week? As God's family, what does that look like? Some of the elements of Sunday, of course, carry over into the week as we continue to read and study God's Word, as we fellowship with God and with each other in care groups, as we pray and confess sin and our dependency upon God throughout the week, as we evangelize and attempt to do our best to be salt and light as gospel witnesses and as disciple makers. What does God think of our church's worship? What does he desire for it to be like? Scripture helps us answer these questions. He desires for our worship to be fruitful. The evidence of true worship and obedience to God is known by its fruit. Jesus states this clearly in Matthew's gospel account, specifically in Matthew 7, when he's making an an example out of the false teachers and false followers He said, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then... You will know them by their fruits. Jesus' point is straightforward. A good tree, a healthy tree, produces healthy fruit. A diseased tree produces bad fruit. Or if it's severely compromised, it will produce no fruit at all. And this is especially important to understand in lieu of our study in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. And I've entitled the message, you'll notice in your bulletin, Lessons from a Fruitless Fig Tree. And Jesus is going to use this tree to teach his disciples, and us as well, about the compromised spiritual condition of Israel. He's going to curse the tree in a powerful and symbolic act of divine judgment, which serves as a prequel to his cursing of the temple, when he confronts 
condemns and curses the worship that he sees taking place in his father's house. What transferable truths and principles of application might the Lord have you and I take away from this encounter? As J.C. Ryle asks, but who were they to whom this withered fig tree was intended to speak? It was a sermon that ought to speak loudly to the consciences of all professing Christians. Though withered and dried up, that fig tree yet speaks. End quote. Let's study God's perfect and abiding word together, which says this in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a, a fig tree and leaf, he, Jesus, went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening. Pray with me and let's ask God to bless the study of his word. Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you for the tremendous privilege that you've given us as a church family to rally around your word yet again. We pray that your Holy Spirit would superintend the preaching of your word and that we would have attentive ears and that our eyes would see powerful truths from your word today. Help us to see insights that maybe we haven't seen before. Help us to apply principles of application. We want to honor you with our lives. We do indeed want to be fruitful. And we know there's a direct correlation with our understanding of your word and the fruitfulness of our lives. And so we humbly come before you asking that you would bless our time as we study your word together. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday we learned that Jesus had reached a pivotal point in his ministry that centers on the last week of his life. Christ's ministry launched into what was called the Passion Week last Sunday. And all redemptive history points us to this week when our Lord will be put to death on Friday and then raised from the dead on Sunday. And it's arguably the most important week in all of history. The week began with Jesus doing something that was uncharacteristic of his previous ministry when he allowed himself to be recognized and really displayed before the crowds publicly as he was entering into Jerusalem. And we learned about the exactness of God's timetable and the prophecy fulfilled that marked his triumphal entrance. Now the week's events are set in motion so that the Lord will be delivered and killed on the Passover on the exact same day that the sacrificial animals would, would be slaughtered. Mark 11.11 11 shared that Jesus left for Bethany, which was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus most likely stayed in Bethany so that he wasn't arrested and condemned prematurely. Now it is the next day, and Jesus is going to do something else that is completely uncharacteristic of his previous ministry. He destroys something. 
The cursing of the fig tree is the only direct miracle of destruction in the canonical Gospels, recorded here in Mark, as well as Matthew chapter 21. In both contexts, the cursing of the fig tree ties into the broader context of the corrupt worship taking place at the temple. And more is going to be said about this as we progress. But to understand this parable, I want to do something. I want to, I want to pick it apart and then put it back together again. Commentators agree that this is a difficult parable loaded with symbolism and meaning. And so we need to make sure that we use good principles of interpretation when tackling it. One of the principles that we'll lean upon heavily today is the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's going to help us unlock the meaning of this passage and its strategic placement in Mark's Gospel. We're going to look at four symbolic lessons from the fruitless fig tree so that you see why the Lord condemns Israel's barren worship. First, we'll consider the fig tree itself and how it represents Israel's spiritual condition. Second, we'll consider the leaves and how they represent the deceptive external righteousness of Israel's worship. Third, we'll look at the fruit, or should I say lack of. This represents what is missing from Israel's worship. And then we'll finish by looking at the root, which reflects the heart of the problem, and why Jesus condemned both the tree and eventually the worship that was taking place inside the temple. Let's start with the tree. And as we go through these, I'm going to provide a physical description first, and then we'll get to the spiritual implications that each one of these provides. Look at verse 12 and 13, half of 13. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. The chronology is set for us in the Gospel of Mark. We know this is the very next day, right after the triumphal entry. We already shared that Jesus was staying in Bethany because it was probably a safer place for he and his disciples to hang out. And it is the morning of the next day, and Jesus is hungry. Food isn't the issue. As we know, the Lord could multiply anything that the disciples had on hand, which he's done plenty of times in the past, right? Or before they left Bethany, he could have had one of them, or Jesus himself could have picked up food in Bethany. But Jesus is using this opportunity to teach some important parabolic lessons. He sees a fig tree in the distance, which would have looked something like this. And we have a PowerPoint slide. I found a picture of a fig tree and what it might look like in the ancient Near East. And as you can see, fig trees were an excellent source of shade. And so it was common for them to plant fig trees along the roads because they would serve you know, as the, the, the uh, rest areas uh, along the way. Those who have driven across country or for long trips, you, you come to appreciate those, uh, those pit stops that people thought about. And they did the same with the fig trees. They were an excellent source of shade and desert heat. Some trees could grow as big as 20 feet tall and 20 feet wide. They were also a very desirable 
source of food. Deuteronomy 8.8 describes the promised land as a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So they were a a, a great source of food to the the nation of Israel that literally um, were found scattered throughout the the promised land. The next slide shows us a close-up of a fig tree. And here we need to have a little botanical lesson. Were there any um, any botany uh, majors out there? I mean, uh, now I'm not saying that to be funny. There are people who who study plant life, and um, th- actually, uh, a, a lot more has been learned about food and even some of the herbal and medicinal aspects of food. Re- uh, and and we're seeing the value of of plant-based enzymes. Okay, so it's just, it, th- there's really good stuff, and there's a lot to learn. And, and personally, I, I think plants are, are fascinating. So I um, wasn't trying to embarrass anyone. I um, was just curious if anyone had, had studied that in the past, because I'd have you come up and explain fig trees. No, I, I wouldn't do that to you. I'll go ahead, and, and I'm prepared to do that. Figs were harvested from mid-August to mid-October, and the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knops in March and April and are known in Hebrew as pagim. This is the time of year when pagim would be showing because we know that the Passover took place in the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, which is approximately late March or early April, according to the Gregorian calendar. So check this out. We are right at the, the, the timing of when this would, would be taking place. Um, this is what the trees would, would be looking like. And so I wanted to, to snag that picture. Thank you, Nate, for, for pulling that up for us. The fig tree produces fig knops before it produces leaves, which is different from our view of most of the trees here in North America. We see leaves first, uh, the foliage, and and then we see the buds and and the fruit come in. But that's not true with, with figs. Once a fig tree is in leaf, a person would expect to find branches loaded with pagim in various stages of maturation. This is why verse 13 Again, it says, seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, Jesus went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. First, it was at a distance, which probably means that it was off uh, the beaten path quite a bit, and then it took some effort to, to go see it. And this would have minimized probably the opportunity of people um, eating the, the, the premature or or, or the pagim, the premature uh, figs on it. If it was in leaf, then it should have something on it. Jesus, in his omniscience, already knew there was nothing on it. But again, he's making a point. Rest assured, though, when the disciples are walking with him and they're heading over to the tree, in their mind, there's an expectation to see what we saw on that picture. There will be some form of pagim on that tree that they would be able to 
eat. Anyone during this time would, would expect that. How much fruit did Jesus find? Look at the middle of verse 13. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. There was literally no fruit on the tree. And some of you might be thinking, well, of course there was no fruit because the verse finishes, for it says that it was not the season for figs. But just the opposite should be true if we understand fig trees in our botany lessons. If they were in season, then someone could claim that the tree was already harvested. But Jesus had this accounted for. There should have been tons of edible premature fruit on that tree. And those, who I, I was raised in Illinois, you guys know that we had uh, apple trees on our property. And oftentimes we were very impatient to see the apples um, fully developed. And so we picked a lot of them prematurely and would eat them. They, they were very tart. Um, some people actually liked that taste and as a result, and the same was true with, with the figs. It, it, it could be a preference, right? They, they were still edible, and, and, and they were still good to eat, even at the premature stage. James Edwards writes, The most puzzling part of the brief narrative of the cursing of the fig tree is the end of 1113, where it says, Because it was not the season of figs. This phrase is usually un understood to exonerate the tree for not producing fruit since it was not yet the season. Understood as such, the phrase makes Jesus' curse vindictive and irrational. But this is neither the only nor the best way to understand the phrase. It is better simply to distinguish between mature figs and early or unripe figs. The end of verse 13 might be paraphrased, it was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was for pegim, or unripe figs, end quote. So now that we understand physically what's taking place, and there should be a realistic expectation that there would be pegim on, on the tree, what does the fig tree itself symbolize spiritually? This, the, the fig tree symbolizes faithless and fruitless Israel. The Old Testament prophets had often used the fig tree as a symbol of judgment. And we see examples in both the major and minor prophets. And allow me to share a few of them. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 17, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them like split-open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. The prophet Hosea, when speaking of Israel's unfaithfulness, records, I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. Hosea 2, verses 11 and 12. Hosea goes on to provide a, a second example of judgment in Hosea 9, 10, saying, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers 
as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. And there are numerous other examples in Joel 1, 7, in Micah 7, verses 1 through 6, in Isaiah 34, 4, and so on. The fact that this particular fig tree had foliage, beautiful leaves, but bore no fruit, portrayed exactly what Jesus had seen in the religious establishment of Israel. Israel was a barren fig tree, and the leaves, which we'll talk about next, only proved to mask or disguise Israel's shame and unfaithfulness. The second symbolic lesson from the fruitless fig tree, so that we see and understand why the Lord condemns Israel's barren worship, involves the leaves. The leaves gave the fig tree the appearance of health. From outside appearances, the tree looked as if it would be rich with fruit. From a distance, we noticed that it even captured our Lord's attention. And as I've already said, no doubt the disciples had that expectation, and anyone from the ancient Near East would have the expectation to find fruit if it was a healthy tree. It was loaded with foliage, shiny, dark green leaves, yet this was all deception when our Lord drew near to expect it for fruit. The leaves symbolize the external cover-up of religion. And when it came to Israel's worship, things looked right on the outside as the religious establishment paraded it around, flaunting an external righteousness, and the rest of the nation followed suit. The temple was filled with religious activity. Rituals and ceremonies were kept in place. Legalism and external law-keeping exalted their pride and self-righteousness. Proclamations of prayer were given attention, and trumpets, trumpets were sounded as large ties were given for public recognition. Religious showmanship was at an all-time high. The problem was that there was no real fruit. And this leads us to the third symbolic lesson from the fruitless fig tree. The fruit. What is the purpose of having a fruit tree if it produces no fruit? What is the purpose of having a fig tree if you cannot get figs from it? The truth of the matter is that it goes against God's design and purpose. And when it came to Israel's worship, it wasn't fruitful. It was just a bunch of religious leaves. The magnificence of the temple and its ceremonies hid the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of repentance and righteousness demanded by God. This was the worship that God intended to receive from Israel, but the religious leaders grew more and more self-righteous, and they lacked a true repentance. And you may recall the words of John the Baptist as the Pharisees early in Matthew's gospel, which was written primarily to a Jewish audience, says this. I invite you to turn there so you can see it. Matthew 3. If you want to turn or click there. Let's start with verse 4. 
Now John the Baptist himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Stop here for a moment. John recognized and saw what was taking place. Then even the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out to receive his, bas, uh, his baptism was, was an act of showmanship. Right, that there wasn't a true heart behind it. And thus, you see his strong response, brood of vipers. Notice what he says in verse 8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice in verse 10 that it says the axe is already laid at the, the root of the trees. This is a, 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 a prophetical uh, forecast as, as John is looking out and and, and understands just what is taking place. This is a warning of impending judgment that is coming. And notice that it says trees in the plural. In our parable today, there's just one tree, right? But it's used to represent Israel correct, uh, collectively. But imagine for a moment if the Lord Jesus went to another tree. Imagine there was an orchard. And he went to the next tree, and the next tree, and the next tree, and the next tree. And down and down the line of the orchard he goes, and there's still no fruit. This describes the fruitless condition of Israel. The fig tree was meant to be a visual parable to Israel and later to us. The church. Just because we look good, because our leaves are large and shiny on the outside, it does not mean that we are bearing fruit pleasing God. And this is a valuable image for us to keep in mind whenever we think of the fig tree. J.C. Ryle has even stronger words for us. There was a voice in that withered fig tree for all carnal, hypocritical, and false-hearted Christians, if they would only see their own faces in the glass of this passage. Let us take care that we each individually learn the lesson this fig tree conveys. Let us always remember that baptism and church membership and the reception of the Lord's Supper and the diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity are not sufficient to save our souls. They are leaves, nothing but leaves, and without fruit will add to our condemnation. Like the fig leaves of which Adam and Eve made themselves garment, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls 
from the eye of an all-seeing God or give us boldness when we stand before him at the last day. No, we must bear fruit or be lost forever. There must be fruit in our hearts and fruit in our lives, the fruit of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and true holiness in our conversation. Without such fruits as these, a profession of Christianity will only sink us lower into hell. End quote. And all God's people said, whoa. Whoa. What a grace gift. What a grace gift from God to receive such an exhortation and a reminder from the fig tree. Like Israel, our worship can turn into a bunch of externals. And we can be so focused on what we're doing externally that we lose sight of our need for God's internal work of the gospel and repentance and faith. We can become busybodies. And so program-driven that we neglect our relationship with the Lord and with others. And before we know it, we can become rich with religious leaves, but barren of gospel fruit. It's always important to remember our foundation in the gospel and that God established our relationship with him so that the gospel would bear fruit in our lives. Amen? Amen. And we see evidence of this in the parable of the soils back in Mark 4.20, which says, the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. The gospel and God's word produce a harvest in the life of a believer. First, it's a harvest of character as fruit of the Holy Spirit produces attitudes in, in, in the believer's walk, right? We see this cultivated as we see fruit of, of God actively at work in, in, in the character of a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It is a fruit that gives evidence to God's work in our lives which pleases him. And God desires to see much fruit in your life and mine. The gospel and God's word also produces a harvest of good works as believers fulfill the one another's of scripture. It happens when you and I serve one another, when we disciple one another, when we bear one another's burdens, when we confess our sins to one another in care group, when we walk with one another, when we hold one another up, and on and on the list goes. It is fruit that allows us to be salt and light to the unbelieving world around us so that they might glorify God one day by repenting and trusting in Christ on the day of their visitation. And this is how we show our worship to the Lord. This is how we magnify his name. We, we, the, the fruit and, and the work of God in our lives as we work synergistically with him, right? As, as we, we know he's gonna do his part, right? 
We know that much. But as, as we walk in faithfulness and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in our life, it produces fruit. Israel wasn't being a light to the nations. Instead, they were covering themselves with the leaves of religion and not bearing fruit. They weren't pointing Gentiles to God's righteousness through faith and repentance, but they pointed people to their pride and self-righteousness. God's word was not taking root in their hearts, which leads us to the fourth and final symbolic lesson from the fig tree so that you see why the Lord condemns Israel's barren worship. The root. As we have progressed through these lessons so far, verses 12 through 14, we've talked about the tree. We've, we've talked about its leaves and its lack of fruit. But you may have noticed that these verses don't mention the roots, do they? That's because Mark doesn't mention them until verses 20 and 21. The account of the cursing of the fig tree consists of verses 12 through 14 as well as 20 and 21. And I purposely didn't read verses 20 and 21 earlier so that I could explain their inclusion here. This is what we call another Markin sandwich. Okay? And we've had a couple of these as we've studied God's word. And Mark was led by the Spirit to use this literary technique so that the lessons on the fig tree would serve as bookends. And the key to understanding the passage inside, which happens to be verses 15 through 19, if you, you'll look in your Bible, is to first study the bookends so that you can see its significance. Notice what verses 20 and 21 say on the morning of the next day. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Here, Peter authenticates the Lord's judgment in verse 14, where Jesus said, May no one ever eat from you again. And that his disciples were listening. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple worship. And here, Jesus just put an end to it. This is absolutely radical. Jesus just symbolically executed and put to death worship at the temple. Now that's, if that doesn't get your attention, I, I don't know what would. When we, th we, we consider the history and the temple according to God's program and God's purposes for Israel. And it isn't a cleansing. That's a misnomer, and we're going to talk about it next week. It's a cursing. And you might be thinking that this seems like a rash decision that Jesus is making, but this action was by no means spur of the moment. Jesus had been long-suffering and patiently waiting for Israel to repent for over three years. How do we know this? 
In Luke 13, Jesus shares this insightful parable. I want to invite you to turn there so you can see it. Luke 13, Jesus shares this in verses 6 through 9. And when I read this, this was so sobering. Luke 13, starting in verse 6. And he, Jesus, began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding, what's your Bible say? Any. New American Standard. Without finding any. Cut it down. Cut it down. It's, it's, it's wasting a plot. That's the question. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered. And he said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The tree did not bear fruit. It did not bear fruit, my friends. And Mark eleven fourteen lets us know the fate of the tree which foreshadows the fate of Israel's temple worship, which we'll study in detail next Sunday in verses 15 through 19. Verses 20 and 21 confirm that the roots, the very foundation and the core of the tree that gives it life, were indeed dried up and dead. You know, I, I, I'm alone. You know, it's great to have Pastor Isaiah in the office because at least now there's, you know, it's not crickets in, in the offices. Uh, and some, well, we always have the trains going by, so it's never quiet here, but, but uh, it's great just to have his fellowship. But as I was studying this passage this week, my heart was just so sad. It was so sad. To, to just see, it made me praise the Lord because he's so patient, he's so long-suffering, he's, he's waiting, he's waiting, and there is no fruit. But I was quickly reminded of the Ryle quote that I shared with you at the beginning of the message. But who were they to whom this withered fig tree was intended to speak? It was a sermon that ought to speak loudly to the consciences of all professing Christians. Though withered and dried up, the fig tree yet speaks. And it does. Doesn't it? It speaks. And pictures speak a thousand words. And so to conclude our time, I wanted to leave you 
with, with two images. And if we can just go ahead and pull up that third slide of the withered fig tree. And that this was what Peter and the disciples and Jesus saw the next day. This is a picture of Israel, a very sobering picture of their worship. So sad. So sad. And we could just sit here and look at that picture of the tree and think about all that it represents. But it, it's dead. It's dead. And I want to contrast that, dear friends, with a picture. And if we can go back to the slide before, there's, there's a picture that I want to leave burned in your mind. And it is one of fruitfulness. And I want you to hear me loud and clear. Your life is a tree, my friend. Your life. I'm talking about your life. And, and I love the fact when, when Jesus was instructing, God's word is always, it, it, it's so precise that, that the axe was laid at, root, or laid at the root of the, of the trees, right? And then each tree, right? Each tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. And even in that, you know what? Israel wasn't being judged. Um, it, you know, collectively they were all being judged together. But as it relates to us giving an account when we stand before God, right, we know that that comes down to each individual person. Each person. And that God saved you and I so that our lives could be fruitful. So that we would produce fruit. And I've already talked about the, the aspects of that, whether that's the, the fruit of our character um, seen in, in Galatians 5, 22, or whether that is the fruit of our good works, Ephesians 2, 10, and uh, um, Titus 3, just being zealous for good works that God has prepared for us. This is it. And this is the picture. This is the picture of our life, and it's so good to, to stop and take a moment. And, and I asked the question at the beginning of the service, what does God think of our church's worship? What does he desire for it to be like? And we answered that question. The scripture answered that question for us. He desires that it would be fruitful. And I want to make it a little bit more pointed. I want you to look at your life and to be circumspect. I want you to examine and, and, and put yourself in and look into the mirror of the fig tree and ask yourself, as it relates to your life, are you just covered with a bunch of religious leaves or is your life fruitful? Is it redemptive? Is there fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life working as God is growing you in your character? Is there fruit of good works as you're serving and fulfilling the one another's? And I'm encouraged. 
I'm encouraged, and, and, and I want to end on a positive note to say that as it relates to our church, I, I see God at work. I rejoice in how God is at work. I, I, I truly do. But for some in the room, right, we, and really all of us, we, we have to, to look at the areas of our life where it's just foliage, where it's not redemptive, and that there isn't fruit. Our lives will be fruitful, and you and I get to decide as we do our very best to walk in faithfulness to Christ and the gospel. May we never lose sight of God's desire for us to be fruitful. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads as a church family and I thank you for the, the study that we were able to embark on today that in some ways is unfinished as Mark has this sandwich prepared for us and the, the meat and what we ultimately need to see is the destruction of the temple and the judgment of Israel's worship. And yet our hearts would agree with J.C. Ryle that there are lessons and principles of application for us as believers today. And I pray, Father, that you would allow us to apply your word to our hearts and allow us to see and reflect upon the fact of the fruitfulness of our life. And are we getting entangled in this world? Are we allowing... Um, things that have no spiritual or redemptive value to draw us in and, and steal our time away from sharing the gospel, from making it to care group, from investing in the lives of other people, from fulfilling the one another's. These are good questions to ask. My heart was challenged this week, and I know that many in the room are challenged even in this moment. And what a privilege that we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate communion today, that we'd have an opportunity just, just to confess our sins corporately as a church, to be renewed in the gospel, that you would bless us as we celebrate communion and enjoy this time together and consider ways how we can stimulate our fellow brothers and sisters to love and good deeds in this assembly. And we thank you. We thank you, Father, for um, your hand of faithfulness. And we pray that you would continue just to allow us to drink deeply of the truths that we've heard today and meditate on them and apply them to our walk in the coming days. We give you thanks and praise for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.